0: Morning. morning hope everyone 's doing well this morning last Sunday in February, so the year is really rolling by. Um, I want to start out this morning uh, with a story. I ask you kind of with a question: Have you ever felt like the world was out to get you a- and maybe you 've used that very phrase before to friends and family after a series of events um, I know I know that I certainly have. Um, I do a lot of hunting and um, I've actually been hunting alligators in South Carolina since 2008 when we first got a season. And it's an interesting uh, situation to hunt alligators. In South Carolina, the way we hunt them is not what you see on TV. There's no bait, there's no rifles, um, nothing made famous by the show Swamp People. You actually got to figure out how to get close enough to these things to get a rope on them. You have to have them tied up to your boat before you can actually harvest them. So needless to say, there is a lot going on in that boat. And on this particular hunt, I was with my twin brother, and uh, we were down near Stump Hole Landing, which if you're familiar with Santee, Stump Hole is where the Congaree River flows uh, into the upper lake. And we had a nice alligator marked, and the the bow shot was off. So what we had is we had an arrow stuck in a riverbank with a lot of rope around it, and you know, below the surface of the water was, a, was an alligator. And so what, uh, what we had to do is um, I had to get my brother to ease me up um, you know, to the riverbank so I could try to pull this arrow out of the riverbank because those things are expensive and you need to get it back. And so um, as I tried to do it, though, it was really stuck. It was stuck really good. And so I, I told my brother, I said, hey, man, like this thing is really, really stuck. And somehow he interpreted that as... Full speed reverse. Now, imagine being on the bow of a boat in a flowing river with rope wrapped around your arms, this securely fastened to a riverbank, pulling with all your might, and then your boat leaves. If you can't imagine that, don't worry, because I'll tell you what happens. You fall off the boat into the river with an alligator. Now, I've always prided myself in my ability to remain calm under pressure so I turned around and I grabbed the bow of the boat completely calm Uh, attempted to push it back into the river with me on it unfortunately what I did is I just pushed the boat back into the river without me on it so there went my brother in the boat and now I'm here with the alligator in the water and so remember the uh, the calm under pressure thing well um, that's that's kind of you know waning at this point Um, So there was an overhanging tree, and I was able to shimmy up that and kind of hold on, but it was infested with fire ants, which left me with two choices. I could remain on the tree like a wet cat, holding on, getting eaten by fire ants, or I could hop back down with the alligator. And so I chose option one uh, to remain in the tree. And the interesting thing was the whole time I was quoting songs and singing hymns, I was not doing that, actually, but I have been forgiven for everything that happened that night, and so can you if you ask. Um, now, now, I know this is a funny story, but, and for a lot of us, uh, the word that, you, that may come to mind here would be opposition, opposition to the world, as in I was in opposition to the world that day, which is interesting because that's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to be talking about two things that go together just like in Forrest Gump with him and Jenny and peas and carrots, the gospel and opposition. And not just some intangible perceived opposition, like everybody hates me or my boss is trying to destroy me or the world is out to get me because I fell on top of an alligator and got bit by fire ants, but real opposition, brutal opposition, life-threatening opposition. And so as I was researching this topic, I came across a speech From Winston Churchill and to set the scene a bit here he gave this speech to the House of Commons in 1940 which the House of Commons is the lower House of Parliament in the United Kingdom. Uh, The Nazi army was closing in on Paris and I read that Churchill had to prepare his people for the worst of what could come. You know his country, his, his allies, they were faced with an opposition so great that the existence of their nation was at stake. And so at this moment, this is what he said. He said, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once again able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. Because if you remember, the U.S. had yet to enter the war at this point. At any rate, that's what we're going to do, he says. That is the resolve of his majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of the parliament and the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches we shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. That's the interesting thing about opposition and what we see in this speech as well. What is right and what is good will always rise in response to opposition. What is right and what is good will not sit idly by in the face of evil. And it may not be recognized on this side of creation, but again, what is right and good will rise. And in this example, we see the Allies rising in face of the Nazis. And it's a great example. And it's an inspiring speech, but it is nothing compared to the people of God rising against opposition. And it doesn't matter whether this opposition comes from the enemy, whether it comes from the government whether it comes from society or even from within the local church itself. Because what we're going to see this morning is this. God moves. He moves and he acts and he moves today. And when God moves, there will always be opposition. As long as we live in a broken world, when God moves, there will be opposition. But, and this is very important, when he moves in this opposition, people God's people grow. They grow. And that's the idea of this morning's sermon entitled, The Advancement of the Gospel Through Opposition. We're going to be continuing our series in Acts, and we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 5, and we're going to talk briefly about the first verse in chapter 6. Now, Andrew has already been in Acts for three weeks now, so most of you know the background. Uh, To recap, Acts was written by the physician Luke, also the author of the Gospel of Luke. This is a history book. This is an account of a period of time with the attention to detail that we have come to expect from a physician and one that we saw in the book of Luke. There's a unity here between the two books, Luke and Acts. Luke himself actually alludes to this in the first two verses. And in the book of Acts, or Acts of the Apostles, we see the birth of the church, the birth of the early church. And Luke doesn't shy away from the opposition. He doesn't shy away from the opposition the early church faced. He doesn't shy away from the brutality of the oppressors, but he also notes the growth of the people from it. And this concept that we've already addressed is this. God moves, opposition arises, people grow. God moves, opposition arises, people grow. And this is refrained all throughout Scripture, but especially here. So let's go and move into our Scripture this morning. This is from Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. We read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Here in this scripture, God is moving. He's clearly anointed the apostles to heal in his name, to perform miracles in his name. And I've read a lot about these verses. I've read a lot of commentaries about these verses. I've read all the notes in my study Bibles about these verses. And I like how Chuck Smith comments here when he reads this, he he differentiates between active and passive faith. Most of us have faith, and a lot of times that's passive, and and that's fine, but sometimes we have to act on our faith. We need to act on faith, and that's what we see with the people who laid their sick for Peter's shadow to pass over. They felt the need to act. Not just to say, I believe, but to believe. And not just to ask for help, but to pick up that proverbial paddle that the Lord has provided because that's active faith. And that is faith by people who see God moving, who recognize his power, and though they may not understand the plan, they act. And God was moving here. And we know he was moving here from verse 14 where Luke says, "...and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women." see they were added to him not to a specific church but to the lord and this should not be lost on us when we see god move we've all heard the phrase to step out in faith and that's probably a bit overused but but these people literally stepped out in faith now there's going to be some when they read this passage and that have read this passage that question the healing power of Peter's shadow in verse 15, where Luke says, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, his shadow might fall on some of them. Can a shadow actually heal? You know, I have no idea. But to dwell on answering that question is missing the entire point of the scripture here, which is the people of God acting on their faith. The people of God acting on their faith As God was moving. Because when God moves, we act. As believers, we put our selfish desires aside, we put our feelings aside, and we act. Because he moves today. God moves today, presently, here in Lugolf, South Carolina, here in this church, God moves today. Some of you know about the revival that's been going on uh, in Asbury University in Kentucky, you know the president of the college, president of the university, has been hesitant to call it a revival yet. He's sticking with the term awakening until the fruits of the event are recognized. And, and I think that's wise, taking the approach here that it appears God is moving. It's a, it, there is a genuine awakening, a genuine revival that we've been praying for in our midst. But but as we remember from Acts. 538 if you remember Gamaliel's response to the Sanhedrin he says this if it is from God it will last if it is from man it will fail because here's the thing and with this revival or this awakening if it is from God even in opposition it will continue which brings us to the next point this morning which is this when God moves there will be opposition when God moves there will be opposition So let's move forward in our scripture, and I want to read verses 17 through 21 first, and then I'll jump to 27 through 33. If you get bored somewhere in between, feel free to read the verses in the middle. I'll never know the difference up here. But um, I think that breaks down the best. So we're going to start with 17, and opposition arises. But the high priest rose up, and and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And now we're going to jump to 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him from a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And as most of you have read, a man named Gamiel then advises, advises the council at this point to hold on. Saying, hey, if this is from them, if this, if this is from man, it's going to fail anyway. However, if it's from God, it will not. And what we don't want to do is find ourselves in opposition to God. So what, what we have is the Sadducees opposing the apostles, rising against the apostles. And this is not surprising because the Sadducees were comprised mostly of aristocrats from the Jews. I read in the encyclopedia, I still read the encyclopedia. Um, I, anyway, I read that the Pharisees were boastful and proud over their learning and knowledge while the Sadducees were boastful and proud over their status in society and over their money. Anyway, they being jealous... Uh, we read that they had the apostles thrown into prison. Why do they do this? They do this because they were opposed to anything that may upset the status quo. They had a great relationship with the Romans, probably too good. And they were content to keep everything in order. They were content to keep the status quo. But, church, when God moves, the status quo is obliterated. God is moving. And he cannot fail. An omnipotent entity cannot fail. It would be illogical to think otherwise. So scripture tells us here that an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison and brought them out. Instructing them to go to the temple and preach. Specifically to preach all the words of this life. Which is what they do. And the wording here is a bit odd among the translations, but another way to read it is something like this. Go and tell everyone about this new life, which for those who have been saved, you know exactly what is being referred to. It's the new life in Christ. It's the new heart-changing life in Christ. Charles Spurgeon addresses this very verse, and he says it this way about while they were told to go and tell of this life. He says, our message, if we're true to Christ, will not be about a doctrine, but a life. The high priest conceived that the apostles merely preached doctrine, for he said, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. But the Christian message is like Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And we are to tell all about this life. And how, how true is that? We don't win people to faith on doctrine. There is certainly a place for it, and I'm not discounting it, but what they're told to do is go and tell about this life. You know, In our men's Bible study a few weeks ago, we were on the subject of evangelism, and I was struck by a point that Sean made. And, and I'm going to paraphrase, so forgive me if I get it wrong, but what he, he said basically is how we live, how we conduct ourselves, what we take part in, All of this tells the world what we believe in. It tells the world if we're authentic or if we're not. We may claim to be Christian, but if there's no evidence in our lives, are we? And so, this is exactly why the apostles are instructed to go and tell about this life. And so, what happens? They're again rounded up before the council, rounded up before the Sanhedrin. But but what is their response? We must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than men. The apostles here knew God was moving, and in this opposition, their faith, their fear of God over man leads them to stand firm, and that's what they do. In the face of opposition, in the face of brutal punishment, in the face of pain and humiliation, They stand like rocks. Why? Because they know God, and they know that opposition comes when he moves. And on behalf of the apostles, Spurgeon says this, he says, "...they asserted their preaching and teaching had been done by divine command that could not be set aside by human authority, and that the true prince of Israel, the son of David alone, had the power and the right to issue commissions." Jesus, whom the chief priests had crucified, was still alive and reigning in glory, enthroned at the right hand of God. Opposition is common this text to the apostles. When God moves, there will always be opposition. And as we've already discussed, it will come from everywhere, and even within the walls of the local church are not off limits. Matthew Henry addresses it this way, Never did any good work go on with any hope of success, but it met with opposition. Those who are bent to do mischief cannot be reconciled to those who make it their business to do good. Satan, the destroyer of mankind, ever was and will be an adversary to those who are the benefactors of mankind. And it would have been strange if the apostles had gone on this teaching and healing and had no check. In these verses, we have the malice of hell and the grace of heaven struggling about them, one to drive them off from this good work, and the other to animate them in it. How many times have you seen this in your life? Opposition to the will of God. It it can be a great indicator of God moving, though not always. But as Christians, we live it. As Christians, we live in opposition, and not just the opposition we see here in Scripture, and not just to the persecutions we see in the early church. We live in opposition to the world, to the God of this world. We live in opposition to the culture and the society that says, if it feels good, do it. You only live once, live your best life. We live in opposition to comfort being the goal of this life. Comfortable houses, neighborhoods, salaries, cars. None of these are bad things. But we live in opposition to them being the measure of our success. Unlike the world. And we live in opposition because God is moving in our lives. And when God moves, there is opposition. But when there is opposition, we grow. In opposition, people grow. From verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And into chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So before we look at the growth in six, first notice what they did after suffering punishment. And if you, if you need to remember that type of punishment, Andrew preached a sermon a while back on just how severe this punishment was. They would have likely been in a tremendous amount of pain, yet verse 40, 41 tells us they, they rejoiced Because they what? They suffered dishonor for the name. They rejoiced. And really, isn't that growth? I imagine beforehand, before knowing Jesus, before knowing the love of Jesus, they would have likely been in the development of their revenge plan at this point. But looking at the scripture here, there is no mention of hate or malice toward the offenders. Why? Because they don't matter. They're spreading the gospel, and for them, the only good, only good can come from this encounter. They're spreading the gospel here. Only good can come from it. To them, instead of reeling from it, instead of lamenting their punishment, they rejoice. They rejoice, and in this case, the offenders are not not part of this plan, and so in this case, they just don't matter. But look at what they do next. They go right back To teaching and preaching. They go right back to preaching the Christ is Jesus, the promised Messiah, the fulfilled Scripture. This is growth. This is personal and collective growth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul David Tripp says it this way He says, The church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people put their trust in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. The church is messy and inefficient, but it is God's wonderful mess, the place where he radically transforms hearts and lives. And we see the growth here. We see the growth of the people, the growth of the apostles from chapter 6, verse 1, where Luke writes that the disciples were increasing in number. And that's why I'm glad six one is included in this section because it completes this process. But I also want to make it clear that this is not a game of numbers. This is not a numbers game here. I think there's a reason our section this morning opens with the word multitudes, Verse a number, and why no number is given in chapter six verse one, because again, this is not a numbers game. This is not corporate America, focused only on the bottom line to please shareholders. And it's important to keep this in mind. You know, I've led a small group before that had two people, one of which was my wife. The first Easter service of the last church I was a member of had 13, and I think seven of those were all family. So again, our measure of success as a church is not based on numbers. It's not based on the number of members we have. It's not based on the number of members we once had. It's not based on the number of members we may have in the future. If we think this way, we've missed the point and we failed. And we have absolutely failed. We have failed and we should repent. The Great Commission doesn't tell us to go out into the world and convert 100 people apiece. It doesn't tell us to go out and raise a church of 500 or 1,000 or 10,000. It tells us to go into the world and make disciples, to make him known. And he reminds us that he'll be with us during this time so we can all relax because the job of conversion, the job of growth is not up To us, our job is simply, as the angel of the Lord commanded the apostles, to go and tell of this life. In the face of opposition, go and tell of this life. God moves, opposition arises, and people grow. And a result of this growth is disciples who make disciples. So as we take a step back now and we look at this process and we study how the gospel rises in opposition, it's clear that everything here points back to Jesus. All of this, everything we read this morning is about him. It is about the good news of the gospel. The good news that though we're sinners, we're forgiven. That there was one who put himself in our place who was found guilty in our place, who was sentenced in our place, and who suffered a terrible punishment in our place. But he did this out of love. He did this out of love so that we, a bunch of sinners, could have a way out. So that we, a bunch of sinners, could be reconciled to a most holy God. And so that we could live eternally, With our Creator. And, church, this is the message that the apostles brought in our scripture this morning. They brought the good news, the life, the new life. They brought the saving power of Jesus Christ. They didn't bring a a new take on an established doctrine, they brought life. They brought what no book, what no teacher, what no law, what no creed could ever hope to bring. They brought life-changing, life-saving power of the Son of the living God because they brought the gospel of Jesus Christ. So knowing all of this, what do we do with it? We live with an active faith. We trust that God is moving. And when we find ourselves confronted with opposition, we don't get surprised by it. We learn from it. We grow from it. We don't seek out conflict. That's the opposite of the message this morning. We don't delight in opposition. We don't delight in the conflict. We don't use the conflict to prove our point. If we're confused on any of it, we ask for clarity. If we're confused anywhere, we ask for wisdom because he tells us he'll give it to us. In James chapter 1, verse 5, he tells us, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. We also understand that our very lives are going to be counter to the world, that they're going to be counter to society, and we shouldn't be surprised by that either. In the book Counterculture by David Platt, he says it this way, Christ makes it clear that Christianity is not a path to more comforts, higher status, or greater ease in this world. The road Jesus walked is not paved with the prospect of self-advancement. Instead, it starts with the demand for self-denial. So we prepare for opposition. We expect opposition. We've seen the opposition of God's people. We've seen the opposition of his message. We've even seen the opposition of his love all throughout Scripture. From the beginning to the end, it's there, and it will remain there until our Savior returns We were, we are, and we will be counterculture, just like the book title says. And Platt goes on to say this. He says, Gone are the days when it was socially beneficial to be in church at the beginning of the week. Gone are the days when it was publicly acceptable to follow Christ every other day of the week. Here are the days when holding fast to the gospel, actually believing the Bible, and putting it into practice will mean risking your reputation, sacrificing your social status, Disagreeing with your closest family and friends, leaving behind the accolades of this world, and depending on where and how God leads you, potentially losing your life. So the question is, are we ready for that? Are we strong enough in our faith for that? And this isn't a football coach speech trying to get you to play hard for the next 30 minutes. This is meant for honest self-reflection. Honest self-reflection, because if we think we're knocking it out of the park, chances are we're probably not. In this walk with Christ, we should all be convicted by our shortcomings. And when we are, we do something about it. We pray and we repent. But here's the thing. We pray and we repent knowing two things. The recipient of our prayer loves us so incredibly much, we will never grasp that type of love this side of creation. And we know that we will always be forgiven. In the face of opposition, let's be prepared. In the face of opposition, be fully armored with the truth and righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Because the battle isn't coming. The battle is here now. So as we end this morning, I want us to remember this. What we've read this morning is not about some superheroes performing giant feats of strength. These guys were not divine heroes of Greek mythology. These were regular guys. Yes, they were given the ability to heal and perform miracles, but these were normal men. These were blue-collar working men. And I would imagine, had you or I been tasked with selecting the 12 for our Savior, these probably wouldn't have been the 12 we chose. God's going to continue to move. He's moving now. He's going to continue to move in our lives, and we're going to continue to experience opposition. And this opposition can be severe. But there is growth there, and there is a plan there, and so we trust. In closing, as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Father, we thank you for this church. And we thank you for those that lead this church. Father, and Thank you for this beautiful, generous congregation that we have here. Help us to see you move. Help us through the Holy Spirit to see you move. And when you move, Father, be with us in the opposition that we know comes. Protect us in the opposition. But in it, Father, help us to grow. We pray this morning for our broken world. We pray for those who are suffering and those who are sick and those who are grieving. And Father, we pray for those who are going through trials right now, trials that maybe only you know about. It may be a trial of health, of finances. Father, maybe it's their relationship with you. Maybe they feel distant from you. Maybe they don't know if you're really there. Father, be with them and provide them peace and comfort because we know you're the author of life. Thank you for what you've given us. We're undeserving, but thank you for our way out. Thank you for the beautiful gift of our salvation, made possible through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.